Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good singing. Thank you, worship team. You may have noted a bit of a royal theme to those uh, songs. We've been emphasizing the kingship of our Savior over the past few weeks, and certainly today that rings true uh, as we consider the text in front of us today. Uh, What a king he is. What a king. We're in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48, our humble and triumphant king. These first verses, I just gave the kind of the heading of purposeful preparations, purposeful preparations. I want to just move through these and unfold this very significant transition point now as we're in Luke. Uh, We've been awaiting this for many, many weeks as we've journeyed through the significant events that have led us now to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This is how it goes. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. Now, I want to pause there just to give us a place to put our feet. Uh, it's always good when you read your Bible uh, to have a sense of where, where am I standing? What, what is the dirt beneath my, my shoes here look like? And so let me show you on a map here where we're at. Um, We were just in Jericho the past few weeks, and now we're heading up the steep incline way up here to Jerusalem. And uh, Bethany is about two miles to the east of Jerusalem, and Jesus has made his way to Bethany, and Bethpage is actually just on the backside of the Mount of Olives. And uh, it's interesting that today they, they actually don't know exactly where that little community was, a very small town. Bethany itself was very small as well. And uh, Jesus was familiar with this area. He would have come through here many, many times in the course of his life. And remember, this is a swell of the population in Jerusalem. We're talking tens and tens of thousands of people have come now to Jerusalem for Passover week to celebrate this together. And so Jesus is coming up with large caravans as they arrive in uh, this area and uh, that's where we're at. Let me give you a picture here of what it looks like these days. Uh, this is courtesy of Dr. John Delancey, who was our tour guide. He got his drone uh, a perfect shot looking east. So the Temple Mount is right here. I want you to, when you see uh, the, the Dome of the Rock, just overlay the temple. Far more glorious and certainly far more honoring to God than that. Um, so think of the temple just towering in height uh, above the Dome of the Rock and looking toward the east. Now, this tower over here is on the Mount of Olives. And uh, so on this side over this way, you've got a gigantic graveyard. Um, Likely it wasn't there in Jesus' day. It's actually grown a lot even in the last 30, 40 years. Um, But over on this side is probably the likely path for where he came down into Uh, the Kidron Valley, and then up to the temple um, to begin to do his work. So if you look closely, you'll see these rows. Can you see these rows of olive trees right in here? It's a big garden area. And I took a picture from right in here, shooting through the olive trees, looking at the Dome of the Rock and the Golden Gate, which one day Jesus, our triumphant King, will return and enter through into the city. 
So it's hard to see from a distance, but at least it gives you a feel for the lay of the land, where we're at, where we're going to be as we move through the, the, these, uh, these words. So, continuing on. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, I, I think of these as purposeful preparations because this is incredibly precise. Think of all of the things that have come together to bring this, this little command to pass. Jesus knows exactly how this is going to go, and it's not as if the script has not been written. It's been planned from eternity past. This, this colt is the most predestined donkey that has ever been born. You think, I mean, think of this. It has never been ridden. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you to go and get it. Why a donkey colt? I mean, do you think? The king has arrived. He's about to enter into the city. A donkey? I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, how about a big, tall, white, I don't know, Clydesdale or something, just huge, like a war horse. And Jesus says, no, I want a donkey. Not just a donkey, but a colt of a donkey. So a very young uh, donkey colt, and it's never been ridden. There's a couple things he's choosing to, to make a point with in this. The first is that he is royalty. Here's what I learned this past week. Apparently, uh, the, uh, the kings before David uh, and the royalty uh, way back would ride around and show their royalty by riding on a donkey. It was only after David that that switched to horses. And, you know, the king would ride up on his, on his mighty horse. And so Jesus, coming as the son of David, coming as the, the king in the line of David, he comes and he makes a statement. He draws people's attention backwards to say, listen, you need to, to recall, this is your king, this is the Messiah, and he has arrived. And he rides in as royalty on the colt of a donkey. What's also interesting is to think about the humility of this moment. He borrows a donkey colt. He owns basically nothing. He says the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. He is a poor king who comes as a servant. He comes meek and mild. And he comes riding on the colt of a donkey. It points to the the great prophecy that was given well over 500 years before this moment. Zechariah prophesied this of the Messiah who would come someday into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Listen to the detail. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on the colt, uh, the foal of a donkey. 
And so, in perfect fulfillment of what Zechariah prophesied, maybe he glimpsed this moment, who knows? But he wrote those words 500 years before this moment, and Jesus fulfills them to a T. It's incredible. The Lord has need of this colt. Now, imagine if you were the two disciples tasked with going and, and, and getting this colt. You, they're not given instructions, go and ask the owner. They're just told to go and untie him and take him. And, and so, I mean, in this day, if you, if you take someone's animal, that's a big deal. But they obey. They go. And they have these words ready in case they need to make a defense. Let's see how it unfolds. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, I imagine they were probably sweating and looking a little bit nervous, like, man, are we supposed to really do this? And the owners came and said, why are you untying the colt? And so they said, well, here's the words. This is what he said to say. We're going to say it word for word. They said, the Lord has need of it. And that's the end of the story. That's all that needed to be said. There's no further interaction needed. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Some have suggested, well, Jesus must have known these things, these people. He must have arranged for this in advance. I don't think so. I think these people knew who Jesus was. He arrived with fanfare. This is not a huge town. The word would have spread Jesus is here. Everybody would have known. And these people were more than happy to allow Jesus to use this special colt for his purpose. So they didn't put up a fight at all. They brought it to the Lord and they put their coats or their cloaks on the colt and Jesus, and then they set Jesus on it. This is an interesting thing. Think about a donkey colt. We're not talking about a horse, Right? You don't have to lift Jesus to get on the colt of a donkey. But we're dealing with, with very significant pomp and, and, and parade here. This Every motion, every move matters. And so they take their coats and they, they drape it over the colt and they get it just right. And then they look at Jesus. And I, I mean, he could just do one of these, right? But no, they lift him up and they set him on the colt to show his royalty, to show his kingship. He is lifted and set on the colt. Hmm. The call to worship this morning is coming true before our eyes. The psalmist that anticipated in messianic hope these words that David read, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Well, who is it? Who is it? That's the question every Jew has been asking for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Who's the King of glory? Who's the Messiah? It is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord who is mighty in battle. And then the, the repeat comes in. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, ancient doors. Open them wide so that the King of glory may come in. Well, who is the King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. General Jesus is riding up to Jerusalem. The one who commands myriads of angel armies. He is the King of glory. 
So we can replace the, the, the who and, and the he with Jesus is the king of glory. We know as these words are fulfilled as well, so much fulfillment takes place in these planned out and purposeful moments as Jesus begins to ride as the victorious king into Jerusalem. Now, worthy and worshipped, let's continue on, verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, just stop here. I I was struck by this moment this week. This is This is one of those moments that you would never forget. As he rode on this colt, all of the myriads of people that have gathered around, there has never been a bigger crowd around Jesus. Okay, you've got to feel this. This is the biggest crowd, the most energetic. The the, the kingdom excitement has reached a climax. And they begin to take their coats and, and spread them out on the road in front of this colt as it comes by. And they lay him down. And then the colt comes. And he's, it's like the red carpet, only it's, it's Bible version of the red carpet. Now we've got to remember, this road is not clean. This is a dirt road. It is populated by loads of animals, which means there's more than just dirt on this path and road. Okay, These people are gladly taking their Cloaks, their coats, which they don't have many of, and they are laying down a a carpet for Jesus because they believe that the very donkey's hooves are unworthy to be treading in dirt and dung and dust. He is worthy, so worthy that he should have a, a, a red carpet rolled out as he rides into the city. I was just struck by this, and then I got to thinking, what would that patchwork look like? What would that moment look like? Think of this. This is kingdom beauty. Okay, who, who's in the crowd? Who has been changed by Jesus? Here comes Zacchaeus, right? The rich man. And he takes his cloak off, and it's a big deal. This is expensive. This is a rich man's cloak, and he throws it on the ground in the dirt and the dung. And the colt walks across that. And then maybe a little kid who Jesus said, don't shoo him away, let him come unto me. He runs up too. It's Jesus. And he takes his tiny little coat and he lays it down next to Zacchaeus. And then the blind beggar comes and he takes his ratty old coat and lays it down. Just think of the parade of kingdom-affected people and the beauty of this moment. Young and old, rich and poor, men and women, right? Slave and free. There may have been Gentiles even in the mix. Who knows? But one, is, one thing is true of all of these. They're all sinners. <laughs> Only sinners are spreading their coats in front of this righteous king the one who rides in righteousness and brings salvation. He brings salvation only to sinners, those who know their desperate need and are happy to lay their coats down and say, you are worthy. You are worthy. 
the, the, the hooves of your colt donkey should not be in the dirt as you enter the city. This is a big moment. It's a parade of praise, and it's like a groundswell. It, it just grows as he begins to get close to the crest of the hill. The crowd increases, and they begin to, to, to shout and celebrate aloud. Louder and louder it gets. Listen to how it goes. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, right where those olive trees were, right, coming down through there, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now, what had they seen? Do you feel this, this real of, of miracles just playing over in your mind? Think if you were there, if you would witness these things. So many of them had seen Lazarus raised from the dead just, just days earlier, right? They had seen Zacchaeus, the, the blind man as well, the poor blind beggar also given salvation, raised. Think of all the people who had seen and experienced Jesus' power, Jesus' salvation. They sing with a loud voice. This also is a unified shout and song. Singing the songs anticipated of the king. And Psalm 118 is now tweaked just a bit. Instead of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's blessed is the king. The king who comes in the name of the Lord. Their words are purposeful. I love that Luke records it for us. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's the echo of the angels' proclamation. Remember? When the angels sang to the shepherds, they echo all of these words. It's on their mouth, it's in their mind, and their hearts are just exploding with joy and love. They begin, we learn in the book of Matthew, they begin to wave palm branches, especially the kids. They begin running around and, and waving palm branches. And, and I love it when we watch our kids do that here. I, I miss that so much on Palm Sunday, but uh, we had a few of them carry the torch for us in their homes. That was awesome. Why did they do this? Just because there were palm trees nearby? No. This was a symbol of, of nationalistic pride. And it was a cry for deliverance. There was uh, the Maccabean revolts that had taken place a number of years earlier. And, and in the second Maccabean revolt, the, the, the image that was stamped on the coin was of a palm branch. And so this symbol, it was anti-Roman. They are waving and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which means save us. The problem is, is that we begin to learn they're not talking about the kind of salvation that we see Jesus bringing. They're talking about salvation from the Romans. And so the, the crowd begins to cheer and shout, and then somehow along the way, it takes this, this turn. It takes a turn. Not that Hosanna is bad to shout, but if all we have in view is a political salvation... We missed the entire point. Jesus is coming to do much more than this. Now, this made the Pharisees extremely uncomfortable. Uh, just a note on this. The Pharisees had warned Jesus not to come to Jerusalem at all or they would kill him. 
And so many in Jerusalem would have assumed, well, there's no way Jesus is going to show up here. They had heard of him, but they doubted that he would come because of the threat on his life. He came. He came right at him. And here they are, backpedaling. And they're, they're just overwhelmed by the moment. All they can think to say is, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Well, why would they say this? Some suggest that they were afraid of the Romans responding with an iron fist, which is actually common in this day. When Rome heard of any type of insurrection, they would crush it with, with blood in the streets. But I think there's more. I think there's a lot more. I think the messianic attachment of, of the Jews' uh, longing and anticipation for their Messiah now being attached to Jesus, that was their biggest problem. Jesus, you need to tell them to pipe down. This is not fitting for them to be saying these things of you. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Who do you think you are? It's the same problem they've had from the beginning with Jesus. Unbelief. They hate Him for it. Jesus rebukes the rebukers. Listen, if these people don't shout out my praise, then the very stones around here We'll do it for them. Now, what's interesting about this moment is I feel like I've been longing for this moment through the entire Gospel of Luke. Remember, Jesus heals someone and then he's like, quiet, quiet. Just keep, keep a lid on it. Not yet. It's not time yet. If we go too public, if we go too blatant, then the fulfillment of this moment is not going to take place according to plan. But now, Jesus is just like, let it rip. Let it rip. This is right. It is fitting. It is good. Sing out. Tell everybody what is true about me. He does not hold them back. And I love that. This is a, a bit of a glimpse. I know that... that the, oh, the week is unfolding and, and such horrific things are coming. And part of me just wants to live right here in this moment and say, is there any way that we can just stay here where we see our King in royalty and humility and the people are praising and it's all joyful? But there again, we would miss the whole point of His entry. He has come to this city not just to be celebrated in his entry, but to teach and then to lay his life down. He set his face in Luke 9.51 for this week, and he has come, and here he is. So he rebukes the rebukers, and he tells his, his, his disciples and all of this crowd, keep it up, keep it up. Now, the very next thing that takes place is extremely confusing. Look at these verses as they go. I titled them, Why, Why Did He Weep? Why Did He Weep? Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, 
had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, in the gates, within, within these walls. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now let me say the last part one more time. Because, that's an underlined kind of word in your Bible. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What does this tell us? It's as if Jesus comes down and He sees this beautiful city, the holy city of Jerusalem. And then He looks through the lenses of what is coming. It's almost as if in His divinity He's, he's, he's given a, a glimpse of this horror that will befall this city in 70 A.D. under the mighty hand of Titus who is crushing the rebellion. And with great fire and fury he comes and he pulls the temple down in total destruction such that not one stone is on the other it's a terrible day and it's like right in the middle of this joyous victory parade the disciples are singing and shouting and waving palm branches and someone looks over and like that jesus is weeping what what happened What's going on? He's weeping. It's not just a tear. It's he's weeping, sobbing over the city because of the hardness of heart therein. I would like to think that everyone in the crowd saw him for who he was, but we know that's not true. We know that there were probably some, maybe many, who were caught up in this political king. They wanted a savior to put Rome away. Deal with it. Get on your throne, Jesus. We want you to do that. And part of the reason why in just a number of days they would be shouting crucify him is because he didn't do that. And Jesus is like, you're blind to what's happening here. You can't see it. Because of the blindness, you're storing up for yourself this, this judgment that will befall Jerusalem. And it did, just as he said it would. Hmm. It would have been a confusing moment, a moment of pause at least in the middle of the parade. But it's a moment that we see the display of the heart of our King. I love that we have a God who does not delight in judgment, in wrath. It is not his heart's disposition. He delights in mercy and forgiveness and grace. Now, he dispenses wrath without a doubt, and he does so fully and, and, and justly. But his heart's joy, his delight, is not in the pouring out of indignation and rightful wrath. It's in mercy and forgiveness. We see this show up a number of times in the New Testament. We see it right here 
in the tears of our Savior King. He weeps over the city for the judgment that is to come. They were longing for a political Messiah. And that longing was far too small. Friends, we would be foolish if we thought this was only the inclination of those in that day. We too have this bent, this inclination to look for hope, to look for help, to look for all of the answers to our problems in a political messiahs. I mean, how many years ago was it that we saw this? Really? I mean, many, many, many people just caught up in, in hope, pinning all of their hopes that, that President Barack Obama would, would solve all of the issues that we have in our nation. How did that work out? Not so well. We still have issues. We're still divided. (laughs) We've got problems in our nation. Friends, when you pray, pray for a king who is bigger than any one nation. We need a king who is bigger than the inclination of our own sinful hearts. We need a king who is righteous, not, not a sinner king. We need a redeemer. I would just encourage us that even as we struggle and wrestle with with decisions that are made in government, you know, think of the responsibility these these people have. We have to be careful that we not just pin our hopes that if we can just oppose this or just, you know, change this office or just do enough here, then all of a sudden it's all going to get better. Friends, it will only get better as people are bending their knee before King Jesus. And that longing has no borders. That longing is global in its heart. And that's exactly what Jesus was weeping and longing to see. He is the only true Savior. The strength of any other political person is measured against the mirror that they are of this King. To the degree that a politician or a leader in a community, reflects the king of kings, he is helpful. To the degree that he does not, he is hurtful. And so we pray, O Lord, raise up faithful servants who would serve in this way. Right? We want human flourishing. We want to see our nation strong. We want leaders who honor the king of kings. But we don't pin all of our hopes there. Because at the end of the day, We understand that this world is getting worse and worse. It's not our home. Our king will return and set things straight. Now, the final verses here. This is is an amazing, just short few verses with so much in them. I call it purging corruption and, and placing his word. Verse 45 He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, uh, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the second cleansing of the temple. The first cleansing of the temple happened near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
This is the second time, and I imagine it's got to be a little frustrating if you're Jesus, right? You, you, you purge the temple once with cords of a whip. You, you run them out. You make a statement. The purity of this place. It's a house of prayer. Clear out all the, the animals and the noise and the corruption. Clean it up. Deaf ears. The mighty dollar prevails. The corruption of hearts prevail. They're all back in there again doing the same thing. So, he drove them out again. My house shall be a house of prayer. That's what the Lord has said. My house is a house where worship is to take place. Not corrupt business transactions and making it so difficult for people who travel to the city for Passover to worship without being extorted. I was just struck as I looked at these, these, these exchanges in the temple with Jesus' ownership and authority. Think about how He walks into this temple. This is Jesus, the Son of God. He comes into this temple as if it is His. And it is. That's His. And He has every right to stand up and to set the course for what is to take place in this temple. To call it out when it fails to be that. I mean, just go back. The entire thing is about Him, isn't it? He is the presence that befell the tabernacle originally, that pillar of smoke and fire, the presence of God. Here He is. He's in the temple. He's the presence of God. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who was sent to to take away the sins of the world. Everything that's about to take place is about Him. He is the mediator between God and man. The greater Moses. The high priest. Not just the king, but the priest. He is the one who intercedes for us. Think of all of the realities of this temple. He is the light of the world. He is the bread, right? He is the door. I mean, all of this is happening right here. Think of the disciples, all of the lights going on as he's teaching, as they think about all the things he said. Here he stands with authority. My house. My house. As he was teaching daily in the temple, or and he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and scribes and principal men of the city uh, were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. I love how after he prepares his classroom, right, he runs out all the corruption in the court of Gentiles, and now he has a classroom ready to go. So what does he do? Well, daily, Luke pulls back and gives us a picture of of this week as it unfolds. Every day he comes to the court of the Gentiles and he teaches there. He teaches. He replaces the corruption with his word. Isn't that how he works in our lives? He comes in and he drives out the junk. And how does he do it? He replaces it with his word. Hmm. Never more than now, the hostility had grown. 
I mean, just think of how angry, how much hatred there was for Jesus. They hated him. They wanted to destroy him. Think of the groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the the leading men or the principal men of the city, the power brokers of Jerusalem. They hated this. Jesus knew that the moment was near, and he boldly taught, and he brought the word of God with fire and proclaimed it. And the people were hanging on his words, at least for now. They were hanging on his words. Hmm. And so we see these glimpses of the glory of our king. We see meekness and majesty come together. He is the perfect combination of what does it look like to have a servant king, to to, to have a humble and meek king. He's gentle and majestic. How does love come together with authority? Well, look, there it is. It's in Jesus. He loves. He is soft-spoken, quiet, gentle, a teacher, patient, and at the same time, authoritative enough to drive them out and establish his word. He's kind. He's a friend of sinners. But he never suggests that kindness should take the place of truth. We live in a society, friends, that is an either-or, increasingly, just like an either-or society. Either you love people or you hate them, right? Or, Or if you love them, you just agree with every single thing they've ever thought or done. Or you hate them and you say something of disagreement to them. Either or. Jesus is not like that. We have a Jesus who is kind and winsome, and yet he speaks words clear, decisive, words of truth, calls people to repent of their sins in love. These are the kinds of things we want to emulate, friends, as believers. We want to be like this in the way we walk in this world. Response this morning, there's so many things to apply in this, but I just want to draw our attention into this interesting juxtaposition. He rode on the colt of a donkey when he first entered Jerusalem. But there is coming a time when he will not be riding on a donkey anymore. His first entry was as a servant king. His second in his return will be as a conquering king. Look at the war horse in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, not a donkey, not a colt, a war horse. The one sitting, uh, sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his, on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Does that not call John's entry in in, in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word. 
The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, guess what? Believers, that's us. That's the redeemed and raptured church. Made pure, dressed in white, and riding on white horses. We're going to know how to ride war horses someday. I love it. I can't wait for this. Is it bareback or saddle? How does this go? You know? We will array with our king in his return to take the city. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is Jesus, the one that rode the donkey. Both and, not either or. And on his robe and on his thigh, some have even suggested like a tattoo on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is there any doubt? He is the King. He is the Lord. And he is coming again. So really it begs the question, how would you prefer to meet him? Because today, friends, he comes to you as a servant, as a suffering servant, one who has laid down his life to, to pay for the sins of all who would trust in him. He comes humble, meek, filled with love and grace, holding his arms out and saying, come all Come, if you thirst, come and drink. Come, experience the gift of life. Repent of your sins. Be saved by this king. But he will come again, riding on a war horse and treading down the nations. I guess the question begs, what will you do with your coat? Will you keep it and stand off in a distance and say, you know, I... I don't really know about this Jesus stuff. I'm just going to watch and see how this plays out. Or will you keep it wrapped around you tight in, in enmity? I don't like him. I don't want him. He doesn't get my coat. I'm hostile against him just like last week. Or will you, like many in the crowd, in humility, lay down your coat and say, you are worthy. You are worthy. I worship you and give you my life. Be my king today. Let's pray. Lord, we have glimpsed the glory of a, a risen Savior, a purposeful and glorious King. I think of all of the different things that he chose to do, the words that he said, the, 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 the demonstration of royalty and humility. What a spectacular gift it is to know Jesus. Father, I pray even now that there would be those who, who have considered these words and that, that you would just turn their gaze to this person, this king, this Jesus. Open their eyes to see him. Stir in their hearts to love Him. Give them the faith that they need to repent of their sins and trust You for salvation.
Save them, we pray. Lord, I pray that there would be all of those who listen, who are believers, who have already trusted in this king, that they would be reminded of his rightful place on the throne in their hearts. That our place is, is to lay our, 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 our coats down before him, to honor him, revere him, worship and adore him. Jesus, we do so now. We thank you for your great sacrifice that you gave. We thank you for the authority that you have. We thank you for the work that is, that is finished. We worship you and we long to see you face to face. Oh, Lord, we love you. We sing your praise with those who sing your praise in this text. In the name of the King of Kings, I pray. Amen.